Let's talk about the influences of the sternum. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Ooh, that is quite good, actually. All right. So we had a pretty solid weekend. Looking forward to another great week. Got lots of mentorship calls this week. So that's going to be fun. I really enjoy those. Um, which reminds me, if you would like to get on a 15-minute consultation, please send me an email at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we'll set that up. Um, which leads us into today's Q&A. Um, I, I got a chance to talk to Greg, and Greg has some, some interesting influences that I think are going to... Um, help a lot of people through through this discussion. So he was kind enough to share some medical history. He actually had a sternotomy where they, they basically slice open your sternum as a, as a youth. And so we talked about the potential influences there. Greg is also a musician and a physical therapist. So we have some really good thinking and we have some performance-related influences um, that, that come into play in this discussion as well. And so the, all of these things need to be considered when we're trying to make changes in movement capabilities. So uh, thank you, Greg, for your participation and, and for sharing um, like you did. It's going to help a lot of people. So enjoy today's Q&A. And remember, if you uh, have a question, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, set up your 15-minute consult, and we'll get that taken care of, and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Clock is running. Go ahead. Fire away. Okay. So a couple of uh, months back, you talked about median sternotomy and how that uh, might affect, depending on how things heal, uh, and how right. that might affect measurements in the extremities because of what's happening uh, internally. Yeah. The first part of the question is, uh, could you kind of talk through maybe some of that in terms of what sure. you might see? And then my second, uh, like asking for a friend kind of thing, except, you know, it's me, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing I'm trying to do is get uh, left shoulder flexion uh, back because I play upright bass. Um, and so. Upright bass. Yeah. So. Wow. Okay. Not, I know what an upright bass is, dude. You got it? <laughs> yeah. So is that sort like, so so what what do you play what what kind of music so i play jazz oh okay i got you awesome perfect it's um it's one of those things where it's kind of a right behind left stance yeah so, no i'm with you no i i understand i understand so i'm with you my 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 sister's a string instrument player so um been exposed to that a fair amount so okay, okay. so so when they uh fillet you open as as we would say um that you have to have a, a, a union of the, of the sternum, okay? So the sternum is, so as it forms, it is two bones that sort of zipper together in the middle when you were, when you were made, okay? And, and so it behaves as two bones. So you have a left sternum and a right sternum. When we talk about, about compression and expansion through the rib cage, you have two sides, right? right? So it's not this one thing that's turning. It's two things that turn together. Yeah. And you also have the synovial joints of the, of the ribs that are attached. So we have a lot of movement around the sternum that, that we need to have to have normal ability to expand and, and change shape which is what we need to make the, the, the shoulder move. So when, so when you have the, the sternotomy and, and then they, did they wire you back together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they wire you back together. So there's a couple of things that can happen. Obviously they, did they talk to you about non-unions and things like that? Uh, not really. I was 12. So they, they didn't go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, 
sometimes what can happen is you get what's called a non-union, which is it's like it's either an incomplete or 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 not even a, a fusion of the sternum back into its its previous state. And of course, it's not going to be in its previous state. So we need to understand that too. But if you get any sort of like a hingy kind of a relationship, now you don't get the 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 um, I don't want to say uniform, but it but it's it's like this coordinative expansion and compression kind of thing because you got an extra hinge in the middle. And so that makes it very difficult, very difficult to create internal pressure. So um, if you were a singer and you and you you had the sternotomy and you had a non-union, you wouldn't be able to sing. You cannot project your voice when you don't have this, this uh, normal behavior of the sternum. So there's a sweet spot between this stiffness and then this mobility that we need under these circumstances. So again, for, for uh, like you think about like a higher force exhalation kind of a strategy, like if you were trying to project your voice and you had this spot that gave way, now you've got a weak spot in the system and therefore the pressure does not ramp up under normal circumstances, okay? Secondly, if, it, if it's stiff and it doesn't turn, now we have the limitation in our ability to change shape that's associated with that, and you're going to have some form of restriction. So, so just think about normal breathing. If I have to breathe in, I should have this, this pump handle that can move. And if I don't have that, then I'm going to have to create a substitution to breathe in. So a lot of people that have anterior compressive strategies, they come in and people say, oh, you're breathing with your neck. So you'll see all of this extra accessory muscle activity that's associated with trying to lift the rib cage upward to create the expansion versus the anterior posterior expansion. Okay. So the question mark is, is, is this an influence for you or is it not? Right. That's, that would be the step one. Mm-hmm. Based on your age that, that, that the surgery was done, um, it's in your favor that it's not that much of a, of, of a deal, okay? Because um, when, you're, when you're as young as you were when it happened, chances are um, you were still mostly um, cartilaginous, as it were, under those circumstances. And so, so because you weren't fully calcified, the chances of it being a limitation is probably slim, okay? Now... Your physical structure lends you towards certain strategies, right? So you're you're tall, right? Not that tall, I'm like five ten. Okay, well, but that's above average. I'll give you that, right? All right. <laughs> um, but but again, so 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 now you're you're going to to be biased towards a certain strategy as far as expansion and compression is concerned, and then how do you hold yourself in space, and then that's going to be how the superficial influences. Um, uh, affect your ability to maintain your center of gravity, turn, breathe, etc. Okay, and then you picked a, an instrument huh. right, that that creates a a structural or not a structural bias, but a a, a uh, coordinative bias. Right? There's a certain position that you have to be in to play your instrument. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And my guess is that that if you're if you're playing at any level, you've practiced a bit. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay, so we have a really strong training influence. Yeah. So just like anybody that would spend too much time in the gym relative to what they need to do for their sport, you have a certain certain influence, a physical influence that's going to be what we would call interference. Yes. Okay, so now we have to come up with a plan that offsets the negative consequences in regards to movement that your desired activity creates. 
That's right. <laughs> yeah. So if we talk about limitations in, in what would be referred to as traditional shoulder flexion, um, the early phase of that, of that movement requires that you have a posterior expansion on, on the, in the area below the level of the shoulder blade to initiate that, that, that movement without any compensatory strategy or without any movement that will be required to move away from that midline, right? And that's where your struggle is. Is that fair? That's fair, yeah. Okay. Um, do you notice the same thing in your hips? Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So at least you match and that's a good thing. Yeah. So the chances of us having a constraint problem, um, like a structural change that is that we can't do anything about is, is reduced under those circumstances. Because if, you're, if your shoulder and your hip kind of match, then, then that would be just lending towards behavior and then physical structure. Okay. Now you're just like everybody else you have stuff that moves on the inside, right? right that you're managing. And then like, like I said, you've got this superimposition of, of the activities. So you're gonna have to offset, you know, to as much that you can, you have to offset those influences. So you have two things, you have this, the normal gravitational influences, and then you have behavior. So what have you done so far that has been effective? Okay, so any, the so I, I also had like a strength training period for about seven years where I was going pretty hard in the gym. Gotcha. Um, so I grew kind of this like monster on my, on the left side of my back. Um, that kind of, you grew a monster is how he said <laughs> it's like a creature over there. Um, it's just the, the asymmetry in, in the development kind of okay. the lumbar area all the way up is it's like visible. And, and it's something that when that kind of kicks in, cause, cause when you're holding the base, you kind of like go to it. Like when that kicks in, then the shoulders just, it, it can't, it can't hang because everything's just so far pushed. You feel so, like you're getting shoved from behind kind of a thing? Yeah, big time. Big time. Okay. Uh, okay. From below. So it's like, I, I get to the point where like, I, when, when that's pushing hard, I really got to get the left side of the pelvis to come back and I got to get the, like the anterior pelvic floor to come up. <laughs> Correct. At that level of forward. Um, right. Yeah. So you're getting, so, so literally you're getting, you're getting shoved into the ground on that side as well. Right. So, so, so what that push forward becomes is that's the source of your internal rotation. So you probably heard me talk about this is that internal rotation, we, we talk about internal rotation with humans is this, this thing that turns in and, and, and downward, it's the downward force that, that, that we're trying to, to create. And so because of the, the orientation of, of your pelvis and your rib cage. And then because of the influence of your, your uh, playing position, you have to create internal rotation somewhere. And you can't do that when you're oriented the way that you are. And so what you do is you just push harder from behind that throws that side of the pelvis down and forward. And then your, your uh, anterior pelvic outlet is going down and that's what pins you into the ground. So it works great. <laughs> right. Um, unfortunately, it's going to create the limitations that we're talking about, which is that shoulder flexion, hip flexion, external rotation measures are all going to be in deficit. Okay. So let me tell you a quick story. Sure. Um, I worked with the number two uh, viola player for the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. And um, she had a similar kind of an issue. So you think about the position that they're playing in, very similar to your situation, right? 
And so I did a little test with her and I had her, I had her bring in her, her ax and she started to, I had her play. And I said, I said, show me the, the position that you practice in. So she likes to stand up when she practices. And so she was standing pretty much the way you would stand if you were playing your stand up bass. Okay. Very similar. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. And, and so, uh, um, and then I, then I said, then I tried to flip flop her orientation. I said, I said, I'm going to put you in the opposite orientation. Um, and yeah, well, not, not, not her upper extremities, just the way that she was standing. So, so she was compressed left posterior getting shoved forward, just like you were. And so what we did is we put her in an early propulsive representation on that left side. Right. So I, so I had her push forward on the right and then, and then create the delay on the left. And I had, and, and she had already played a, a piece of music and then, um, she froze, like literally didn't know what to do. Yeah. Because she, it was so unfamiliar to her because she's never in that orientation ever in regards to her play. So she literally froze. And then she proceeded to play in her mind horribly. Yeah, of course. Right. So, so the thing that, that we want to recognize is number one, if you're going to keep playing the bass, don't worry about the, the position that you're using to play the bass. Play the bass well. Do that really, really well. What, what we need now is the strategy on all other circumstances. So there's got to be enough work done to make sure that you can create that delay strategy on the left side. So everything that you do, so you're going to be the guy that kind of falls into the, um, like the, the, um, the platformed, heels elevated, goblet, squat stuff to start to create some of that so when you get into the deeper end of that squat, you want to be able to create the, the counter-nutated sacrum with the delay strategy. So with the yielding action at, at the base of the sacrum. So you're going to do a front foot lead. So, so the split stance activities for you is going to become very, very important because the split stance is what allows you to create the turns. Okay. So um, the traditional single leg stuff, probably not where you would want to start. Okay. So you need two foot contacts, but an asymmetrical foot foot contact in everything that you're doing, except for like, like I said, maybe the, the, the foot elevated um, goblet squat. Okay. Because you need to learn how to maintain and create turns that requires a two foot contact. The minute you pick up the other foot and you're in a single leg stance, you have just reduced the amount of turning that, that you're capable of within the pelvis, because that's where we got to start to look at this thing. We're going to build this from the pelvis up. Okay. So split stance, staggered stance, mm -hmm. right? That's where your money is, yeah. all right? Th does that make sense to you when I say things like that? That's, yep. Got okay. So, so again, that's going to be, so you have to think about like all the cool stuff that I want to be able to do, right? And then I just need to offset it with, with enough of the opposing activities. So I don't lose my ability to make those turns because that's what's blocking your ability to, to raise your arm, Okay. Any questions so far? No, no, no. That all, that all squares. Okay. Now let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so assuming, assuming that you can capture the, the shoulder range of motion and the hip range of motion that is required, you're going to slowly want to move into uh, positions that will favorably influence the up pump handle. You want to ma make sure that you're maintaining that. Okay. Um, and so um, quadruped activities are really, really good for that. Okay. Um, arm supported kind of activities and then working towards the inverted position. 
Okay. So this is going to be a situation where your, your behind is higher than your shoulders and you'll be, you know, propped through the arms and things like that. The great thing about that is it flip-flops the airflow. So lungs fill from the bottom up when you're standing upright like a glass of water. But if I turn you upside down, guess what? Gravity helps us fill the upper part. Okay. And so that's going to be one of those things that, that is, will be a staple um, for you in some of your, your movement activities. Eventually what I would say is, is that um, when, when you do start to recapture this stuff consistently, you want to turn this into dynamic activity. So, so old school gym class stuff is going to be your, your long-term friend. Okay. Bear crawls, yep. things like that. Where Again, where your hips are a little bit higher than your shoulders, you're loading through the extremities and you're capturing that, that early propulsive position, the early propulsive position through the shoulder girdle and through the upper thorax. Does that make sense? It does make sense. What questions do you have very quickly? You have 45 seconds. Uh, no, that, that, that kind of covers, um, <laughs> that kind of covers what I've been up to. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm on the same page there. Well, you're, if that's what, if that's what you're doing, then you are on target. Yeah. That's okay. That's on my list. Yeah. Sometimes you just need more stuff. Just and more, more volume of the, of the same good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, it's like, how much do you practice? How much do you play? And then how often are you on your feet? Like all of these things come into play. It's like, sometimes people are doing the exact right thing that they need to do. They're just not doing enough of it to offset the, the, the circumstance. So we always talk about, about secondary consequences that are associated with all of these activities. Like, like, I don't want to take anything away from you, but okay. So if I'm going to play, let's say you play two hours a day of stand up bass. Okay. And you do five minutes of work to try to offset it. Yeah. Right. Not enough. Which, which adaptation wins, right? You see what I'm getting in? You know, some people, some people, they say, I just can't find the right exercise. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, and, and then you tell me what you're doing. It's like, okay, you're doing the right stuff. How much of it are you doing? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to do to offset it? Right. Right. I sometimes think that the, cause I'm, I'm a PT as well. And sometimes I think that like some of the manual therapies and things like that, that we're doing during the day can like bleed into not being able to acquire that. So that creates an element of interference as well. It's kind of like that day-to-day -day sort of yeah manual therapy is rarely a solution it's a window of opportunity right you're, you're trying to create something that the, the patient can't create for themselves and then that that's what allows them to to sense something capture something and then you give them something to reinforce that that's basically how that works right all right young man i gotta run to the next call thank you so much i hope this was helpful Yes, it's great. Thanks, Bill. Excellent. Excellent. I'll see you on the coffee call. Yeah, of course. We'll see you. Excellent. Then. All right, man. I'll see you Thursday. Let's talk about some wide ISA intervention strategies. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man. It's already a busy Tuesday. Got a clinic day coming up. So looking forward to that. We'll dig right into today's Q&A, which reminds me that if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put the 15-minute consult in the subject line so I, I don't accidentally delete it. Um, the videos are going up on YouTube. I'm getting a, a lot of questions um, on, on the YouTube channel, so I would suggest you go there and subscribe so you can get the first dibs on, on when those videos go up. Um, so please do that. 
And then let's go ahead and dig into our call with Camilla uh, this, uh, that we did over the weekend. So uh, we were talking about one of our clients who presents with a wide infrastructural angle and a lot of the superficial muscle uh, strategies that we talk about. So there's a lot of concentric orientation, a lot of compressive strategy to the degree that Camilla is actually identifying a lot of accessory muscle breathing activity. And so we talked about strategies of how to, how to adjust intensities for these people. Um, so we're not promoting any further compensatory strategies. Um, so literally just how to position somebody to, to promote this, this expansion that they need. So they need anterior posterior expansion and then how to take advantage of some of the things that, that this client's already doing. So this, this client likes to um, go to spin class. And so how to adjust the spin bike um, to take advantage and to promote some of that posterior expansion that these people are, are lacking. Um, so this is gonna be a useful call for a lot of people because I think there's a, there's a, a fair amount of this um, that we tend to see. Um, and again, not like life's been stressful for the last year or so, um, which is just additive to all these situations. So again, thank you, Camilla, for your participation. And again, go to askbillharmon at gmail.com. If you have a question, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Okay, clock is running, Camilla. Give me your right. question, please. So this new client, she presents differently from anybody else I've seen so far. She's... Okay. She's about 55 years old. She's been athletic overall. She's been doing CrossFit until COVID. Okay. And then she was really like worried about COVID. Her husband has some condition to where he's more sensitive to, you know. So um, I think her stress level throughout COVID increased a lot. Okay. And I think that is also related to what she went through. At some point, she reached out to me about three weeks ago, and she has said I had this, this terrible pain um, up into my chest, um, and it wasn't deep. I mean, I wasn't worried that was a, a heart problem or even like a gastro problem, gastrointestinal problem. I felt really superficial but really intense. Gotcha. She ended up going to physical therapy, and... Um, I, I guess some physical therapists gave her some move that resembles CPR. She said that it was excruciating. Yes. CPR? Like, like is that pressing yeah. on her chest? Yep. And she said okay. it was the, one of the worst pain I ever experienced in my life. After that, she's been seeing a different physical therapy, complaining of neck tightness, upper chest tightness. And when okay. I saw her, I can visually see how high her chest bone is. So, so she looks like it's way up. Am I correct? Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So anyway, we did a quick assessment. I know her for a while. I just haven't seen her throughout COVID, and she's okay. definitely wide infrasternal angle. She's uh -huh. Uh -huh. really limited in pretty much everything. Okay. She has, ERs and IRs are all kind of restricted. Yeah, she has a little bit of external rotation, but definitely no flexion, neither at the hips or at the shoulders. Gotcha. Uh, no internal rotation. Did you did you do any complex movements like squatting or split squats yeah. or anything like that? Okay, were they all were they all kind of kind of restricted and and uncomfortable? Yeah. So her toe touch is not too bad, but she definitely doesn't have a, a round. You can see. Um, she shifts way back. Does she shift way behind her heels when she does her toe touch? Not so much. Not way behind. Actually, what I was surprised to see when she stands is like being that she's so wide. Um, actually, her weight is shifted forward, kind of like most of my narrows and she has a really flat lower back when she stands she has a sway okay. back okay. she's not kyphotic at all she's pretty much a straight back but her pelvis is definitely forward. okay now i got a good picture then good okay okay so her squat was horrible meaning yep. 
I don't judge. It's just like the way she went down, it was more a hinge and immediately her toes to out. Right. So she's looking for, she's looking for range of motion. She's trying to find a, a, a space that she can move into. Right. Yeah. So, so to squat, she needs the external rotation. So she's going to orient her hips to try to find that. So that's, that would be expected under these circumstances. So whenever you see that posterior compressive strategy, you, when you talk about like being really flat on that backside, that's somebody that's pushed way forward. Right. So she's got a lot of the, the superficial muscle activity that we talk about. That, that does not allow her to expand posteriorly. And that's where you're going to pick up your external rotation. So it stands to reason that anything that you ask her to do that demands the external rotation, she'll find it, but it's going to be like way out there, right? Yeah. Um, chances are, chances are, she's also compressed anteriorly. And then what you're seeing is the response of the, of the anterior orientations, which would make the, it like a lot of people misunderstand when they see the, the, the sternum being up, they say, Oh, you have an up pump handle. Well, if you had an up pump handle, you would have internal rotation, which sounds like she yeah, doesn't. Not at all. But so, so again, this is going to be somebody that, that is compressed and she's moved so far forward to get that anterior orientation. This is just a response of, of the position, right? Mm -hmm. So if you later down, you don't do table tests, do you? Because you're, you're in the gym, am I correct? I don't do table tests. Uh, I had her lay down and I want to check her breathing. Uh, yeah. Literally when she was supine breathing, she yeah. started breathing like, into our neck and that's okay so 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 that's a so the fact that you can identify that is useful for us now because what what that's going to be is that that's somebody that doesn't have the normal anterior and posterior expansion when she takes a breath in so she still needs to create an increase in volume internally to create the negative pressure to bring air in so what's the next best, best strategy well if i grab the top of the rib cage and i pull it up that creates that that space, right? Yeah. And so this is where you start to see the people with the really big sternocleidomastoids, or you see the scalenes kind of jumping out at you. And these are the people that can't they can't relax their neck because if they did, they wouldn't be able to breathe. Yeah. So kinda, yeah, I never yeah. seen before in my life. Like, yeah. So she's giving you some good information. Yeah. Yeah. Now here's the here's the dilemma that you're walking into. <clears throat> you got somebody that doesn't have any posterior expansion. So that means that she doesn't really turn too well, right? Yeah, so, I had her trying to rotate. Yeah, it probably was like, yeah, exactly. Now, but there's a great test retest for you to let you know that you're making a favorable change when you do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if she's wide and she's compressed AP, um, we're, we're, we're going to try to rely on some gravity here to try to create some of this expansion. The, the simplest easiest thing to do is to put her on her side okay the minute you put her on her side so gravity pushes down right and so the 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 side of her that is closest to to the ground or that is on the ground is going to get compressed into the ground and what that does is it creates a spread anterior to posterior so and there's good research on this it's like all you gotta do is lay somebody on their side and they get bigger front to back so that's advantageous okay now She's going to be flattened out front to back. So she's got a lot of muscle activity on the front side. She's got a lot of muscle activity on the back side, and there's nothing on the sides <clears throat> to squeeze her in, which is one of the reasons why we want to put her on her side. Now we want to start with some gentle, just, and these are not full rolls. This is just getting her to start to, to roll forward and back through a small excursion on her side in the most relaxed manner possible. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you put her on her side, you support her head, 
on whatever you got, AirX pads or whatever, right? And you want to make sure that that the head and the neck and the the uh, axial skeleton is in a nice straight line. <clears throat> so she's rolling around her long axis of her axial skeleton. Okay. Yeah. But we're just talking about small excursions. So this is lazy. It's slow. It's boring. And I would put it on the level of being meditative. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you can kind of promote it in that manner, then it becomes useful to a lot of people because chances are, sounds like she's carrying a little bit of anxiety associated with what's happened over the last year. She's got her husband that she has to be a little concerned about. So again, that's going to be demonstrated physically as well. Yeah. And so, so we want to think about calming her system to try to access this, this gentle um, movement without the superficial strategies. Okay. So I start with these really, and it, so, and I've done this with like professional athletes and it might take 20 minutes in some cases to really make an impact, mm -hmm. um, which is, seems like a really, really long time. Not something you would probably want to do during a training session, but this is homework. Mm -hmm. So you spend enough time showing her how to do this. So she's literally like, if, and, and if you were to, um, <clears throat> if you were to put her down on the ground, she's in sideline and just put her arms and her, and her hips at, at 90 degrees, mm -hmm. but lazy. And then you put a hand on her shoulder and on her hip and you just show her how to oscillate through, you know, 20, 30 degrees of a roll. So she rolls back off of her side. She rolls up to her side and then she rolls forward just a little bit at a time, making everything heavy and lazy. You're, what you're trying to do is get her to sense what it feels like to move with less muscle activity because everything that she's doing is, yeah. you know, it's all tensed up and very, very superficial. Nasal breathing, quiet, relaxed nasal breathing. Not you, you never want to give somebody like this um, a, a strong exhale strategy because that's what she lives in. And so you'll just reinforce it and it becomes interference again. Yeah. Okay. Once you get the initial changes and she'll be able to tell you, uh, number one, when she takes her breath in because you won't see the neck uh, strategy that she was using before. So you can use that to your advantage and you say, take a, take a breath in. You'll see the chest rise and fall. You'll see the belly expand as, as she breathes in, which would give you that normal kind of a, kind of a breath in, but you won't see the next strategy. Yeah. And then you kind of know that you got her in the right place. Okay. Once you do that, then you can start to give her like these full excursion rolls where she starts on her back. And then did you see my video where I, where I talked about the rolling, like leading with your arm, leading with your leg kind of thing to create this. Okay. So she's going to be, she's going to be a, a lower extremity lead type of roller first, because that's going to create the posterior expansion as she rolls. Okay. So you're going to lead with legs first. Then eventually you can teach her how to roll with, with her arm. And then eventually it becomes an arm bar with a, with like a kettlebell arm bar, which, which I just love. And then maybe eventually you don't have to give her that kind of a stuff that you just keep the arm bars in the program in some way, shape or form, whether it be in, in her early stage, like her warmups or her readiness or however you, you, you perceive that, or you put it near the end of the program so that anything that does kind of crank her up during, during her, her exercise program, you sort of calm her jets at the end by giving her something as supplementary that's turning related. Okay. Um, other activities that you want to think about um, when you're, when you're doing the, the training session. Um, so she's kind of squeezing herself against gravity 
And so you want to you want to look at uh, activities that would lighten her. Okay. Mm -hmm. So anything where she's pulling resistance downward actually lifts her up off the ground. So it makes it easier for her to capture the expansion strategies. Mm -hmm. So that when we talk about yielding, that's the connective tissues allowing the expansion to occur. So if we were to do like a staggered stance chopping activity, your half kneeling chops, all of those activities eventually become these turns that and again, you break her into it gradually. You start like if, if her feet are parallel, you start her in a little bit of stagger, you get a bigger stagger, you get a wider stagger, you get a bigger stagger, and then eventually she's doing split squats. Okay. Do you see how you build this in? Yeah. So you don't want to force her into anything. You don't want to give her um, aggressive exhale strategies. You don't want to put her in um, the like the hingy type of activities in the gym because then you're just reinforcing her current strategy. Now, if performance was the game, that might be a good thing. I think under these circumstances, because she's uncomfortable, because you're seeing this accessory breathing strategy, I think you got to go kinder and gentler at first and just teach her, teach her how to move without this massive amount of muscle activity. Yes, yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And okay. Yeah, I can, see her, I can see her body, how tense she is. Yeah, and so, so yeah, so, so again, it's like, like giving her heavily loaded you know, deadlifts would be yeah. exactly what she, it's like. She's walking around doing a 300 pound deadlift. Right. And so we want to give her this stuff. So, so like I said, we want to, we want to induce gentle turning and then teach her how to, how to do this um, in a controlled manner first. And then you can start to direct it, direct it with load. Right. So we're not trying to load her, her physically to produce force. We're trying to, to use load to guide her into a position. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. What other questions do you have? So, well, we're talking still about her since uh, she is one of my students. I also do that. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. And so she was asking me yesterday and she is very open to change things up. Uh -huh. Is it okay for her to keep doing the spin? And she said, you know, she feels some tension. I suggested she would elevate the handlebar uh -huh. and maybe dial down the intensity, check on the heart rate. Cause obviously right. the higher she goes, right the more she's going to start reaching out to her neck. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so it, it's kind of like the same thing that we were talking about. It's like, okay, do you want her, do you want her to uh, climb hills on that thing? Probably not. Right. So we want her, we want her in the saddle. Yeah. Okay. We want a position that allows her to expand posteriorly. So, so you're, you know, the, the advantage of, of the spin bikes is like you can, you can work through different, arm positions so i can work on arms extended to create the posterior expansion or i could go through elbows to get the posterior expansion so so now you you have some options to play with and you say which one provides the best posterior expansion for you mm -hmm. which one gives you the best head and neck position to allow her to breathe right and yeah. so you can use that in in your favor the, the question that i would always offer is like you're just going to have to monitor the 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 level of effort for her because the minute you start driving the effort up, she starts to squeeze again. Mm -hmm. And so she's going to be the one that does a, probably a lot more steady state yeah. than somebody that, that would be working like hard intervals. Like I said, you don't want her climbing hills on a bike because all that's going to do is like, it's all propulsion, right? She's going to be driving hard from the back and she's going to be trying to shove herself forward. We want her to go backwards. So, 
but I, I do like those bikes because they do allow us to capture positions that allow that posterior expansion. So, so all you got to do is look at this stuff and say, what influence do I need? Okay, she's flat on the back. She's compressed in the back. How can I get her to expand and allow her to exercise at the same time? Okay, relative intensities matter, positions matter, and all you got to do is reinforce it. Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. The last activity I gave her yesterday, just this one little thing, it felt good to her. Um, I propped her knees up and it was like a rock back, elevated breathing. That yeah. worked. She said yeah. she felt like the neck wasn't kicking in at all in that position. Exactly. I was Beautiful. trying to expand her, like a posterior side. Correct. Absolutely. So you're on the right track. You're, do you're, you're doing good stuff. You're doing Thank good you. stuff. But, but like I say, give her, give her the sensation of, of when it turns off so she can feel it and then she can direct herself to find it. Okay. Right. So that's going to, and that's always the hardest part. It's always the hardest part. Once they get the sensation, now you have the vocabulary where you, where you can have this conversation. You can say, I need you to let this, this tension go because they don't even know they have the tension. They don't feel it. You just have to give her that sensation. Okay. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks. Enjoy you have a great dinner. day. I'll see you later. Okay. Yes. Sure. So we will try to formulate something that is is um, useful. Sure. And then um, maybe even entertaining for somebody else. There's probably going to be like six people that are going to be interested in this call. <laughs> You know, or it's going to be like really cool. You know what I mean? It's going to, it's going to like fall into one of those, one of those extremes. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. It is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday. And as usual at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be doing the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Um, I think we're into a year on these and uh, they just evolved into something that's totally fun. Um, we got a great group of people. We got a bunch of regulars that come in. We get new people every week. So, so please join us for that. Um, the Q and A's are getting a lot of attention. So I get a lot of, a lot of good feedback on these. And so we're just going to keep doing those. And so if you'd like to participate in a, a Q and A with me on video that we post up here on the uh, social media, then um, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15 minute consult in the subject line so I do not delete it. Speaking of which, got a regular from the Coffee and Coaches Conference call in the Q&A uh, this morning. It's, it's from Paul, and Paul is very well read. Um, he's a very deep thinker. He sent me a really long email with a whole bunch of questions, and but, but what, what it led us was to a discussion of some of the foundational principles of the, of the model, like, like how did this actually come to be, and, and where did some of these things come from, and so we discussed that, and it was the last call of the day. So we, I just let it go because we were having such a good time uh, going back and forth. And um, so I think, with, I think the call went 35 minutes. I'll end up posting the whole thing up on, on the YouTubes. So uh, if, you're, if you're digging this call, then go there, subscribe, and, and watch, the, uh, watch the entire call. Because, again, we just had a great time. Um, Paul's a good dude, and I will see him, obviously, tomorrow, Thursday morning. Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Um, please enjoy this um, this uh, Q&A, as we always do. And then I will see you guys tomorrow um, for coffee. And then we will continue this process as we go through the week. So everybody have a great day. I will see you. We are on. Okay. So I was a little worried about this one, Paul. 
It might be above my pay grade. It's above mine too, man. I, <laughs> I need somebody to talk to about it. That's I understand. I understand. I'm, and, and, and believe me, I'm interested. I just don't know. I don't know to what degree I can satisfy your, your desires here because even some of the, like the people that are totally invested in some of this stuff have no answers. So, so we will try to formulate something that is, is um, useful. Sure. And then um, maybe even entertaining for somebody else. There's probably going to be like six people that are going to be interested in this call, <laughs> you know, or it's going to be like really cool. You know what I mean? It's going to, it's going to like fall into one of those, one of those extremes where it's like a lot of people are going to go, wow. Or there's like, the, there's going to be like 60. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah. They'll get a couple minutes. All right. Minutes. So far away. You start. Okay. Um, I know I wrote you like, you know, multiple paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good book. For the sake of the recording, do you want me to recap some of that, or do you just want to? It's up to you. This is your call. So, so if you want, if you feel like you like, again, you could just formulate a question, or you could you could give the background. It doesn't matter to me. Um, cool. So, so, so whatever you need to express. Okay. For the sake of time, how about I uh, touch on some of the examples I, I listed in the paragraph. As far as the main question, when I just look at your model and I continue to sit with it and think about it, you know, and try to make sense of it, because it is so different from all the stuff I've learned uh, about anatomy and biomechanics and all that stuff. It's very different. But what I, even though it's challenging my mind, it also is uh, resonating with a lot of other things that I've learned about the fundamental fundamental nature of nature. So, uh, you know. It's very ambiguous. Gradients is really what we're dealing with here. Things like entanglement, quantum entanglement, that all deals with this concept of, or exists on this uh, idea that uh, everything's connected. And when you talk about gradients in like a joint space, ER and IR occurring simultaneously, but uh, with varying degrees, that just sounds a lot like some of the stuff I hear particle physicists describing when they're talking about how things actually work. And it seems like your model describes how things actually work a bit better, even though it's strange. It seems to be in line with the strange stuff that seems to uh, explain the nature of the universe the best. So that's where I'm like, I'm, I'm simultaneously confused, but also recognizing that I'm, I'm on the right track when looking at your material. So my main question is how did you come upon such a cohesive model did you, did you actually try to make it fit in with the governing uh ideas or was it just by chance like as you like for example the rib cage when you look at the helical structure or helical angles of a rib cage i've never heard anybody say something like that and when you talk about how we can uh the principles that govern the structure of a tetrahedron and you know helical angles on the micro scale, those same principles can apply to the macro scale when we're talking about our rib cage. So that's also just shows me that you're on to something that's a little bit closer than what a lot of other people have been talking about because you're considering all the stuff that isn't just right in front of our face, you know, the, the less intuitive stuff. But it is right in front of our face. And that, that's, so that's, that's the thing that, that, that has not been recognized. We yeah. look at things as being different instead of saying, so, okay, so you've heard of first principles reasoning, 
right? Like as many people have by now, because again, it, it was sort of repopularized, if that's even possible. It's like you, you listen to Elon Musk and says, oh, I just use first principles reasoning. And everybody says, oh, Elon Musk came up with this idea. It's like, well, Uncle Aristotle was talking about that long before, you know, we even existed when he was talking about, about first principles reasoning. So, so there are absolute principles upon which we have to behave because they are part of the universe. We are part of the universe, which sounds like this deep and kind of esoteric thought process. But the reality is like, we just have to follow the rules. Mm -hmm. And so the, the concept of a gradient exists because that's how movement is produced on all scales. Mm -hmm. There has to be a change to allow change to occur. If there's no change, then it's static. Nothing happens, right? And so, so okay, so now the question mark becomes, it's like, okay, so how do things move in the universe? Well, they, they get bigger, they get smaller. So that's compression expansion. And so if that's, the, if that's the principle, if that's the rule, then all we have to do is say, well, how do humans do it? And what they did is, is they, they used the model that they had to establish a thought process, which is actually useful. And they said, well, let's look at dead guys because we can't cut the, cut the live people open because that, that would be bad, right? So they, they started looking at dead guys and say, oh, look, we pull on these things and we got levers and pulleys. And so dead guys do have levers and pulleys, but humans don't. And, and that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough uh, leap for for a lot of people because they just make this direct association. But all you got to do is is all you got to do is look at one dry cadaver and then you look at a, a, a fresh cadaver dissection and you see two different representations right away, right? Um, and then and so I was I had the benefit of that a few years ago when I did a series of fresh cadaver dissections. Um, and, and actually some of my students actually got to participate in some of those. So, so they actually got to see it, see it happening as well. Um, and, and that was incredibly enlightening as to um, how we do some of this stuff. And so now we start saying, well, okay, wait a minute, this is a fluid model. All right. So, so this makes more sense that, that what we're actually doing is we're, we're changing shape and it's like, okay, well, how do humans compress and expand? And we could start with, with something compartmentalized, like a, like a fascial compartment or something like that, that gives us a little bit of a closer dose of reality. And then we have to start looking deeper and deeper into structure. And so when you look at a collagen fiber, you look at a collagen fiber and what is it? It's helically oriented. Okay, great. And then if you look at um, the larger scale, as, as you build yourself outward from that simple collagen fiber, you see that everything is organized in these spiral orientations. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, that they're all helices. And then you say, well, where's my best representation for, for, for the helix? And you go, oh, holy cow, I got a big giant one staring me at the face, right? And then that's when we started looking at, at the archetype structures, where I said, well, some people are you know, flatter helices and some people are more vertical helices. Well, it stands to reason that your strategies would have to be different because you only have so many options that are available to you, but you have to still follow the general principle of, of compression and expansion. And so, so it's like literally that this is why we talk about, about fractals. Uh, that's why the fractal representations are so important. And you look at everywhere, you'll see that you see this repeating rule concept, right? If something works, Nature repeats it. So that's uh, why does everybody see the the, the Fibonacci um, spirals everywhere? Well, because it represents an element of efficiency and structure, 
right? So, so it makes sense that it would repeat itself on, on many different scales and in many different representations because it works, mm -hmm. right? And so everything moves towards efficiency. Everything moves towards efficiency. So, you know, it's, it's like uh, never stand when you can sit and never sit when you can lay down and never just lay down when you can sleep, right? So again, we're, we're always looking for like the most efficient energy output. Um, and, and so when we talk about physical structures, so the tetrahedron is, is our second most efficient representation. So a sphere would be this perfect representation of efficiency. It's the least surface area with the greatest volume. Right, so that's why everything kind of in the universe kind of falls towards that spherical representation. Why are the planets round? Well, because that's the most efficient representation. Here's the problem: in biology, we don't have curves; we only have straight lines. Okay, so I have to create the next most efficient structure, which is a tetrahedron. So that is the least volume with the greatest surface area. Right, and so now I am constructed with these tetrahedrons. Well, but if you slam enough tetrahedrons together, you get the helix. And then the helix is the collagen fiber. And then everything else, you see how it builds out into this larger and larger representations. And then all we have to do is observe and say, well, how does this behave? How does this fit into the rules uh, of the universe in regards to compression expansion? How do I create the gradients? And then everything just kind of sl slowly falls into place if you just pay attention. So that's how it evolved. It was, it was basically like, it's like, okay, what are the real rules? Because the problem that I ran into is everybody had different rules. Mm -hmm. Instead of like saying like, what's the commonality? Like, why do you think that? Why does, and, and a lot of stuff works, but then you would hit the limit, right? So if you, if you, and the mistake that I made is buying into any singular system. It's like you buy into a system. There's great stuff in some of that stuff when you have nothing else to work with. But then you, when you invest yourself in it, if you pay attention long enough, you realize that you hit, you hit the limit of that because the model upon which it is based is, is limited in scope. It's not following the principles. They made up their own rules. And so, so the goal and, and you, if you listen to me long enough, I do use the word coherence a lot because it has to be consistent with, with the absolute laws, yeah. right? I cannot, I cannot defy gravity as hard as I have tried in my lifetime. I cannot defy gravity, right? And, and so I have to appreciate that. What does that do considering my physical structure, considering what I am made of, right? You're 99% water, 1% stuff. Well, how does the water behave? Okay, there's fluid mechanics. How does the stuff behave? Okay, there's, there's structure that, that has to follow the rules, right? And so again, if anything is in, is in opposition of, of what I understand as those principles, then it doesn't fit. But everything that does then starts to make sense. And so then now you have gradients, we have fluid pressures, we have, we have compression, we have expansion, we have helical orientations. That creates expansion and compression within and of itself. That creates shape change. So all proteins, all proteins change shape based on the influences that are, that are um, applied. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. That's how, that's how this, this came to be. Yeah, because I was like, how, what thought mindset did you find yourself in when you started to recognize that it could be better? And then when you started to find what was better, those things were actually beautifully coherent with these governing models. And I was just very con or curious how conscious yeah. you were of that. Because when you look at some of these 
papers that were put out in like 26, you know, where they were really starting to figure out where like wave particle duality was or how it was working. And they're explaining uh, one guy in particular. I like to read his stuff. He's not as popular. Walter Russell. He's got beautiful explanations of how there's basically one thing in the universe. That one thing uh, fluctuates between these two polarized extremes of uh, magnetism, which is basically a centrifugal, uh, you know, concentrating force. You've got electricity, which is this centripetal expanding force. And I'm like, that's Bill's model. I'm like, this is what Bill's talking about. Like Bill's model is describing what these physics. So that, that's the model. That's the model that we have to follow. Yeah. Well, like, uh, not my, like, that's not me. That's just me going, oh, okay. So if that's how it works, how do we do that? You're the only one who's had the presence of mind to say, let's maybe try to do something radical. And, and, and but see, it's not radical. It's not radical, Paul. It's just, it's just looking at it as, as, as the representation and identifying the foundational principles and then following those principles. That's all. That's all it is. But how many people are, I mean, radical by. I don't know. I don't, I, I, Paul, I it, you see this little corner? <laughs> This is my this is my world. This is literally like I go two places. I go here and then I go to iFast. It's like that's it. That's all I do, right? And I'm happy. I'm happy with that. But but again, it's like it's just it's just following principles. Like I I like yes, it is it, like my my model is a representation. Uh, it's it's a specific application to the universal principles, right? And it, and it's like you, you'll see this in. Um, uh, it's it's sort of like looking for the unified field theory in 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 human behaviors, right? So so you mentioned something about consciousness and things like that, um, and and um, and I would argue that that there's going to be like if 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 I ever get into that aspect of it, it will be coherent with what we talk about in regards to. Me. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. And it is perfect, by the way. That's I've, I've been killing it. Whatever I've been doing, the different. No idea what it is, but it is perfect. Paul, did you did you French press this morning? I did. Um, in the forum earlier this week, uh, you mentioned that the stretch shortening cycle is incomplete in regard to tissue behavior. Yes, sir. That's, that would be my opinion. Yes. So I was wondering if you could, if you could stretch that out a little bit. Oh, that's funny. Was that a pun? Was that a pun? Seriously? Did everybody hear that? It was, that, a, sh it was a short answer. Okay. So hang on. So I, I need this date documented because because this would be the second time I think that that I've gotten Manuel to get like a full facial smile, because <laughs> right? he's usually this like you know serious stoic kind of dude. That was good. Um, okay, so when we think about connective tissue behaviors, we have to to look at it um, uh, in, in a much more broad scope, in my opinion, because of the the differences in stiffness, and then certainly the, the way that things are loaded. So all the connective tissues are viscoelastic in nature with different quantities of, of you know, like there's a variety of stuff. So some have a little bit more elastin, some are a little bit more collagenous, and, and then bones have hydroxyapatite to make them a little bit stiffer, et cetera, et cetera, right? 
And so <clears throat> I always use the, the, the rubber band example um, when we're talking about these things, because it, it's, it's useful. So, you know, the really thick wide rubber bands in the gym, they're hard to deform, but if you do deform them, there's a lot of force behind it. And then the skinny rubber bands are easy to deform. Um, they move very, it, because they're easy. They move very quickly, um, but they don't produce nearly as much force. And so all you gotta do is do like a, a banded squat sometime and you'll get a sense of what I'm talking about. Right. And so when we're talking about stretch shortening cycle, um, what, what they have done is they've been a little too focused on certain things. And so they'll say, well, they, they imply that muscles are, are movers, therefore anything that's attached to the muscle and then to the bone, they, they say, oh, this is how we produce this elastic kind of a thing. And, and to a great degree, I think they're, they're correct, but I think it's short-sighted not to include all of the connective tissues um, because of the way that the, the force is distributed through the body. So if we don't address that, and, and I think it would be very difficult. And so again, that's probably one of the reasons why, I mean, it's a little bit easier to look at a, at a tendon behavior than to look at, you know, like the entire distribution of connective tissues, right? To, so to, and, and there are, there are some studies that, that, that do measure the, the, the shape change of bones, which is nice. So it gives us a, a clue there. Um, but, but to say that it's, it's just the, the musculotendinous unit that is producing this force, one, it makes the math wrong. Because if you think about this, if I'm distributing these loads and these forces and the, elasti the elasticity, so, so you know, the, the storage and the release of energy throughout all the tissues, and I don't measure the one that can store and release the most energy, then I'm gonna say that, okay, if this was the force production, and then I'm looking at just muscle and tendon as the unit that's producing the force, I'm gonna say, wow, this tendon has to absorb and release a whole lot of force, right? When it was like, oh, but what about the skeleton? What about, you know, all the other connective tissues that would be associated with this? What about the, the fluid change that creates the expansion and the compression that is, that is producing this force? So you see how, how it kind of just falls a little short? When you, when, but again, I think it would be very, very difficult to truly measure, um, you know, how that, that is distributed, but to not mention it as, as being included in this whole process, I think is, is where it falls short. By putting a rep count in there, you're actually making it so their strategy is just to get to that rep number when they're, when the strategy might be more appropriately seen as, you know, they're trying to recapture range of motion or they're trying to feel X, Y, or Z. And so I have started in circumstances where I'm trying to recapture range of motion, just saying like, don't worry about the reps for now. We'll get to reps like next month, um, especially with remote clients. It's like get, we'll get to reps next month. But this right now, this is all about breathing and like this one or two muscles that you're feeling or the position you're in. Um, and so I'm wondering if, I'm wondering how the impact of strategy influences your programming in that way. Like, would you be the, would you be the type of person to, to program reps in a very specific way? Or would it be more like, here is kind of what we're going for in general, because we only want you to be thinking about one thing. Um, and I guess I just want to hear about your thoughts in that regard. Um, it makes people uncomfortable to not have an end. Hmm. 
So here, here's what we're going to do, Andrew. <clears throat> we're going to go for a run. And, um, and then we're just going to run until we're finished. Right. Okay. You ready? So here's what I want you to do. You just start running. Okay. And then I'll tell you when you're done. Feels good. Yeah. Right. Okay. So what you're actually saying, I'm, I'm, I, I can totally dig, right? It's not important. Like the repetitions really aren't important, but if I don't give somebody, if I don't give somebody a target, you're, you are now going to affect their ability to perform. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I tell you that we're going to go for a run and I don't tell you how far we're going to go, and I don't tell you how long you're going to run, et cetera, et cetera. You, you immediately have no idea what you need to do. It's like, do I run fast? Do I run slow? Am I running too slow? What pace should I run if we're going to run this far? So if I say, so I don't know if you run, do you run? Um, I mean, sometimes I sprint randomly, but it's not structured. Okay. So if I say that we're going to run five miles today, Andrew, you yeah. immediately have in your head, uh, like whether you recognize it or not, you, you think I have a pace that would be my five mile run pace, right? Like yeah. you wouldn't, you wouldn't run like you're running your sprints, right? You immediately know it's got to be slower than that because I got to do it a heck of a lot longer than my 100-meter sprints. Sure. Okay. If you don't give somebody a target and or an end, right, um, while you might be able to focus on different elements of the of the the process. So if I'm if I'm focused on on restoring movement capabilities and things like that, it's like yeah, you might get it. But again, it's like, okay, how much effort should I put behind this? Because if, if I'm capturing the position, how many times is Andrew going to make me do this, right? How much effort do I put behind each repetition? And so um, in, in that case, it's always better to give them an idea, right? So um, I don't give a rat's patootie about how many reps, to be honest with you. Um, but what you might want to do is say, okay, we're going to do a 45 second set. And what I want mm -hmm. is I want best quality of repetitions within that time frame. So, cause that's all repetitions are is a, is a representation of duration of exposure and rate of movement. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what those are. And that provides a, a measure a measure of stimulus, right? So we can dose things a little bit and, and have a little bit more structure. So I think that if you if you leave people hanging too much, it just makes them uncomfortable. But, but like I said, I'm not disagreeing with the premise, but but we have to work with humans that are emotional. And and so um, you know, they they don't like so it, they don't like walking into dark hallways that they're not familiar with, right? So yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you want to increase someone's anxiety when you're trying to recapture movement capabilities? Definitely not. Yeah. That's, an, that's interference. That's like interference all day, every day. Right. Uh, I had a question. Um, the difference between a tempo uh, deadlift and then a kickstand RDL where you have the, so let's just say the left foot forward and the right foot is back with the toe on the ground. Okay. So would the first one, the kickstand RDL, where the left foot is forward, that would be going from early towards mid, and then the tempo deadlift, that will be going from late towards mid. Would oh, that be the difference because of the pelvis position? I understand what you're saying. Okay. 
Um, so so we, we, got, we got to talk a little bit about uh, load distribution first, okay? As I unweight one of the extremities. So if I was to pick one foot up, okay? The degree of relative motion changes rather dramatically. So, so let's, let's use a single leg RDL as an example. So if I pick that foot up, I've just locked the pelvis into one piece under most circumstances, okay? There might be some relative motion, but I'm, I'm talking about within the pelvis itself. Um, so, so we're gonna reduce the amount of relative motion that we have available. So if you're doing a kickstand where the back foot doesn't have as much weight on it, okay? I've immediately restricted the full excursion of that, of that change from, from early to late, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm basically compressing towards the, the middle strategies where I'm gonna be more IR biased, uh, more nutated, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose an element of that. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Okay. The two foot contact does give me more turning capabilities. So I am able to access, you know, the, the, the two ends, so to speak. Okay. But um, I, I just wanted to make that point that, that it would not be my first choice um, to do like a kickstand. Um, if I'm, if, if my goal is to increase the excursion, am I making sense? Yeah. Now, so if I'm doing the kickstand, what, what did you say it was? So I'm left foot forward and then right is back with it on the toes. The, right. the right the toes are touching the ground. Yeah. So, so as, you, as you're bending into the kickstand, right, because the foot is behind and I am, I am, I'm more pushed forward on that left side, okay, Again, we're still playing in this middle ground. That's again, that's where I want you to really recognize this fact. Okay. The degree of turn that I'm going to get towards the loaded extremity is, is less. So I won't be able to push, like I won't be able to turn the sacrum towards the loaded extremity as much in regards to the relative motion within the pelvis, where I'll get the turn is between the femur and the pelvis as a unit. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So I'm playing, I'm playing within that middle ground when I'm doing a campo because, because of the, um, the two foot contact is going to be more evenly distributed. It's not evenly distributed, but it's more so than the kickstand. I'm going to get more relative motion within the pelvis and I'll be able to make a better turn where I'll be able to create the, the delay strategy more on the heavier side. Right. So there's a load distribution difference in this that's going to prevent the turn. Did I help? Okay. You? Yes. Yes. That makes sense. So if the left foot is in front and you're doing your kickstand deadlift, that will be a little, bit, a little bit more compressive and propulsive. And then Campo, because you're pushing back, you can create more of a yielding strategy on the left side. You got it. Exactly right. Exactly right. So you get to decide. It's like, okay, am I biasing this more towards a, a force production kind of a thing? Okay, then I don't want as much relative motion in the pelvis, but I might be able to create more relative motion between the femur and the pelvis, which is also useful at times, right? Okay, yeah. Like where, where do you want the motion to occur? 
and where do I not want it to occur? Right? One is more restrictive than the other. One's going to allow relative motion within the pelvis. Okay? Okay, yep. Thank you. We have another segment on training rotational athletes. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Man, another great week. Looking forward to, to a, a great weekend. Um, if you're on the two-week sprint system like I am, this is the slow weekend where we do all of our catch-up work. So um, I'm kind of looking forward to that, actually. Um, it would be kind of nice. Uh, we're going to finish up the week um, with the Q&A segment. I'm going to do another another piece from the uh, Quarterback Docs podcast. Um, if you were watching last Friday, we did a little segment from there. Um, I talked to these guys. I, I just had a blast talking to these guys. And so um, we ended up talking for about two and a half hours or so. So um, got a lot of stuff covered. But it's another segment in, in regards to, to some of the, the issues that, that we talk about um, when we're training these, these athletes that, that need to be able to train, like golfers, tennis players, um, throwers of any kind. And, of course, um, Drew and Dusty Keel work with a lot of quarterbacks, a lot of throwers in general. And so this will be, be hopefully, again, a useful segment for you to lead into the, to the weekend. Um, if you have any questions, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, um, and leave your question there. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consult, and so uh, you get your face up here on, on the Instagram and on YouTube, so uh, please send that to askbillhartman at gmail.com as well. Put a 15-minute consult in the subject line so I do not accidentally delete your email. Everybody have an outstanding weekend. And uh, we will see you next week. Yeah. All quarterbacks have physical tools. All of them have intellectual tools, right? And there's this mix of, of who they become. Some people can compensate for the lack of cognition with something physical. And some people are much more cognitive than they compensate for the, for, for, for the other, right? And so, again, you always see these mixes. You just kind of kind of find out who this kid is. And then you say, yeah. we're going to emphasize this. This is your strength. We're going to work on this other stuff, but this is going to be your strength. And I guess this is true, too, you know, assuming that a quarterback has the capabilities to even rotate, right? Because one thing I appreciate, I was watching an old video of, of what you were t uh, talking about in rotational like, athletes. It was a baseball pitcher, but throwing yeah. is throwing. But you talked yeah. about how the more compact that a thrower can stay to the line that he's moving to, the faster he's going to be. Absolutely. So, so if I have a quarterback or any thrower that starts to lack some of these ranges of rotation to the shoulders and the hips by, through compression, yeah. I start to deviate away from that quickness too. Yeah, right? so, so, this is, so this is a really simple representation, okay? So shortest distance between two points is the straight line, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. so if, if, I, if I train an athlete to excess in regards to superficial musculature, so, so too much hypertrophy, too much force production, and they, and they start to constrain 
their their physical shape. So so all we got to do is take a look at the extremes as the representation. So you know when you see somebody that's very well muscled, they have really really wide shoulders, right? So the reason you get wider is because you're getting squeezed front to back. There's no muscles on the side that squeeze you back in. All the muscles that squeeze you are either on the front side of your body or the back side of your body. So you get squished out the sides. And so what happens is you go from this nice cylinder shape that turns very easily, and then you become this this sort of like oblong kind of kind of wider side to side and narrower front to back well to turn that takes more time there's a greater distance to rotate around something that is wider than something that is narrower and so that's why you'll see these these prototypical quarterbacks tend to be a little bit taller they tend to be a little bit narrower their helical angles are a little bit more vertical and you'll see you'll see a different type of delivery from those guys right and those are the guys that can turn. The worst thing you can do is take that away from them. Now, having said that, I can train them to a certain degree, increase their force production, and maybe add some connective tissue stiffness that gives them a quicker release up to a point. But then going farther than that, and I've just stolen their abilities again. So this is, again, we go right back to the beginning of the conversation. This is how you train people, right? Mm -hmm. You got to find out, you got to find out who they are, what they're good at, and what they need. And the only way to do that is to train them. You start, you do something, you see what happens. If, if I'm teaching a young quarterback, though, because one thing that I, I love about what you teach, too, is this idea of compression on one side and expansion on the other side through right. unilateral work. Right. So would I, if I was starting with a younger quarterback, and I'm teaching him just the basic skills, and he's, he's a novice in the weight room. So yeah. would I want to start as all individual de dependent, but would I want to start in that unilateral motion to have the expansion and compression to really, to keep the ER fields that I want to keep throughout a period of time versus starting them on these, you know, these barbell lifts, like a bench press, squat, deadlift, etc. Well, I, I, you know, we're, again, I'm, trying, I'm trying to conserve, I'm trying to conserve that ER field as long as I can, while I build the IR, IR field, right? Correct. Correct. I mean, if, if, that's, if that's the representation, if that's the key performance indicator that we're going to monitor, so we're going to say, I, I need to maximize the extra rotation, then, then anything that you do that's bilateral symmetrical has the lesser opportunity to create ER because it's going to be compressive on both sides, right? And so when I, when, I, when, I, when I work on split orientations, so staggered stances, split orientations, that actually allows rotation to occur. Bilateral symmetrical exercises by design stop rotation. So they are for max propulsion. So when we go back to our propulsive phases, those exercises are designed to increase the force output at max propulsion. The other exercises that we do are to maintain the external rotation field that allows us to turn because that's why you do split stance activities in the first place is because they actually allow turning to take place. So all so your chops and your lift, your half kneeling and all those exercises yeah. that you do with the split, split orientation are designed to preserve external rotation. So a compressed athlete that we know is lacking some rotational rotation in areas where we want rotation would he ever perform an exercise with his foot flat 
Would we want him to do sure. that if he if we knew he was compressed? Sure. Okay. So why not? Would that be interference? So, because in my mind, that's that's mid propulsion. Me? What? Okay. It, okay, but but in the split stance representation, look where the look where the tibia is going to fall. So the tibia is going to fall behind, or it's going to fall in front. And so now I'm playing with with turns, right? What you might want to want to reorganize your little question is that: Do I want their their feet symmetric? Yeah. That's yes. probably and you would want yes. to think about making a change, right? Because again, I'm, I need to move in and out of these positions. So rotation, rotation still has a max propulsion moment. So, so um, when you're looking at, at uh, uh, peak forces into the ground, so every thrower has a max propulsion moment into the ground that is so brief. So here, let me, let me, let me, we're on video. This is this is going to be an audio release, right? Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Okay, but we, but you and I are on video, so I'm going to yeah. show you. I'm going to show you the representation, and nobody's going to get the joke except for you guys. Okay. okay. So yeah, this is so so I'm I'm going to snap my fingers, and this is how fast max propulsion is. Do you want to hear it again? <laughs> okay. So so that's how fast. This is how fast max propulsion is during a high velocity throw. So if I'm a baseball pitcher and I can throw, you know, 95 miles an hour, or if I'm a quarterback and I have to throw at maximum velocity, the, 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 the point of maximum propulsion is the smallest possible duration with the highest possible force production. So it happens very, very, very quickly. That's what we're, that's what we're training. That's what we're trying to train when we're talking about these throwers. Right? It's not about just raising numbers and saying, oh, you're now stronger, Johnny. Right? But I just made you hold your internal rotation too long, and I took your velo because I took the space away from you that you needed to produce ER, which is velocity. That makes a ton of sense. And you know, the more that you say, you, you keep, keep saying some things, and I'm like, that, I mean, that's just like game, a game changer, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. in a way when it comes to – to spend time because I feel like for a quarterback, there has to be so much learned over a, a, let's say a 10 year period from about eight to 18. You have to learn a ton. Yeah. So the time if you think about the, all the buckets, you just used to spend time, time in the weight room is a big bucket, but you could actually be making yourself a worse quarterback and in the potentially, by spending more time in the weight room doing some of these things, which is kind of is very frustrating thinking about that, you know, in hindsight. But that's the truth. So, let me say one thing. So, I'm not against resistance training. Sure, I'm, I'm against randomly applied resistance training. It needs to be it needs to be purposeful. There's a there's a point in time for for every tactic and every tool, if it arises. That's why they're useful. That's why it does help. That's why you'll see. So, I'll give you an example. It's like there's a kid that was like throwing 90 miles an hour, and they strength trained the crap out of him, and he ended up throwing 95, 96. But you can't just say that kid did it, so it must be good for everybody. That's the yeah. mistake. That's the mistake, right? Yeah, you got to find out 
what their needs are and then provide for that. Because chances are, um, based, on, based on just, um, all we gotta do is look at history. They find that kid that's like 17, 18 years old with a cannon for an arm that throws 97. And he's never been in the weight room. Uh-huh. Because, because the gods turned his arm into a thunderbolt, right? <laughs> as, the, as the movie goes, right? You understand what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. It's like genetically speaking, the best of the best already have these tools. We want to enhance what will, what will improve them and then avoid what will create the interference. That's, that's what I'm against. I'm against the random, especially, yeah. in, especially in situations where people show extreme superpowers because that's who these people are. They're superhuman. We can, take yeah. the good, we can take the good and make them so much better if we train them you know, as a process rather than just pigeonholing them into, oh, you're a quarterback, here's the quarterback program. Yeah. And with that, you know, as you layer on, whether it be strength, power, whatever you want to work towards, there's also this threshold of if I constrain them too much and they become compensated, they might show better measures, right? You might increase somebody's fastball from 91 to 94, right? but if you're doing it in a manner in which either pain or injury is at that threshold too, you might want to take a couple steps back as well. Right. And so you, so you guys are PTs, so we can have this conversation. So there's situations where in, in most cases, um, when people present with, with some sort of mechanical pain, um, they, are, they are applying force into a very, very small area. So somebody walks in with knee pain, that's a knee result. It's not a knee problem, it's a knee result because they're using that, that, that area more aggressively or more load or more duration than we would prefer them to. So, so the load's not distributed. There are, there are situations where we can accidentally do something that distributes that force elsewhere, and then the, then the pain goes away, but we created a second problem. The way, the way I always talk about this is like you go, you're a golfer and you got a swing fault and you go to the golf instructor and they give you another swing fault to get rid of your swing fault. <laughs> And so this happens in physical therapy all the time where we actually make people feel better, but we didn't provide the solution that would, that would be the best solution where we reestablish relative movement capabilities, connective tissue behaviors, where they can actually distribute all of these forces effectively. So we don't want to fix a problem with another problem. And that's what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, we demonstrated higher performance, but now I created a, a second problem that we're going to have to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I, you know, I feel like this, um, you know, because the quarterback position is so dynamic too. It's not like you're a pitcher standing on a mound or you're a golfer standing in a position to swing a club, right? So like there's movement before the action and then there's, then there's the action itself. So it's like, for example, you're a quarterback taking a drop and throwing to your left. Yep. Well, now you have, you have to rotate on top of a torso that's dropping to the right, right. which is a whole other, you know, that just kind of blows my mind thinking about what we just talked about. Because you think about throwing statically, and if you already have an issue there when it comes to, let's say, balance and control and, and that center of mass, right. and you add a dynamic of, oh, I have to get myself set up and also look to see where my receiver's at whenever I throw, there's, that's just a whole other realm of 
what the what what your actual goal is in training, and also where you're at in that moment in time where it comes to constraints of that individual. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, you you you're, you're totally on point. And and again, this is this is why I I look at movement as shape change. It's like what shapes do I need yeah. to allow this to occur? It's like I can create a turn in anybody. Okay. The question is is how did I get there and did I do it in the most efficient manner possible? So people that people that have this 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 representation that we would talk about where the superficial musculature is squeezing, they can still turn, but they turn like a refrigerator. <laughs> not not in, in in the ability to create the expansion and compressive strategies that is faster because again i'm creating a straight line if you've ever had to move a refrigerator and you're kind of walking it across the room you know like yeah the refrigerator is turning right but not in the most efficient manner that's why that's why it sucks to have to move a refrigerator but again it's like i can make anybody turn the question is 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 it efficient are we, are we doing something that that enhances the performance outcome, right? And that, it's and interesting. That, that's always oh. the question. That's always the question mark. But, but, but again, you monitor your key performance indicators over time. You apply a strategy and you say, let's see what happens. It's and interesting hearing you talk about, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what I'm, what I'm saying is like, is like when we do these things over time and we learn some process and then we start to see the archetype representations, this allows us to narrow the probabilities of being more accurate right away. So this is this, again, this is, this is a big deal. This is why the archetypes exist because they give us a faster point of reference from where to start. Because, because I got one guy at one end of the spectrum that's a great turner. I got one guy at the other end of the spectrum that might not be a great turner, but he's a great force producer, right? And so now I can start to move them towards something that might be more efficient very, very quickly because that's how we, that's how we make our decisions anyway. It's like whether we're talking about clinically or whether we're talking about the performance realm, it's like we're, we're basing this off experience and probability, but having the archetype available to us, having the representation of how the superficial musculature can, can either enhance or limit my ability to turn. Like that's why these representations are so valuable because they, they accelerate this process. Hmm. You're right. You're right. And that's, that's what I appreciate about your model and your process is that it's all based off of the context of the person who you're working with. And hmm. it's of individual needs of, what they're working towards, but also wherever that person is at at the current time. And, and also age, because people are going to change their shape over time based off of what they're doing in their lives day, on the day-to-day. -day. Sure. That, that's, that's also going to change too. Well, everything's an influence. Everything's an influence. Yeah. We just have to decide how much.